So the reason this is probably the worst mistake is because I probably made seven or eight mistakes combined into one here. And you know, so I was kind of a senior analyst and I was kind of mentoring other analysts at the firm and so forth. And then one day, and I recommended that we, we buy a position, and we did. And then one day I was updating my model and I realized I literally made a mistake. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive these five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I created from the lessons I've learned from all my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all AESTOTS Academy courses. Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from AESTOTS Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Gary Mishuris. Gary, are you ready to rock? I am. Let's do it. <laughs> so let me introduce you to the audience. Gary Mishuris is the managing partner and chief investment officer of Silver Ring Value Partners, an investment firm with a concentrated long-term intrinsic value strategy. Prior to founding the firm in 2016, Gary was a managing director at Manu Life Asset Management since 2011, where he was a lead portfolio manager of the U.S.-focused value strategy. Gary received an SB in computer science and an SB in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And just as a side note, he teaches the value investment seminar at a local university. Gary, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Sure. So maybe just a quick story of how I got into value investing for the audience. You know, I was studying at MIT, as you mentioned, and during the tech bubble, which was about 20 years ago, and I was lucky enough to buy the only tech stock that didn't go up. And I say lucky enough, you know, I was thinking I'm a smart guy, you know, I'm studying these subjects, I should be able to find a tech stock. And I was pretty poor at the time, I would work two jobs, I had very little savings, but you know, whatever little I had, I decided to put into the stock. And, you know, the only stock literally didn't go up. And I was wondering what's happened when Warren Buffett came and spoke on campus at MIT and you know, at the Sloan Business School there. And basically made me realize that what he was talking about was very different than what I was doing. And that what I was doing wasn't investing. It was speculating. And basically, that's how I got into value investing. You know, I won't bore you with the 20 years between then and now, but that was kind of my start and the rest is history. Mm, interesting. And uh, what is it that attracted you to value investing? I mean, it's not for everybody. No, and I think you have to have the right temperament. I think Charlie Munger and Buffett and many others always highlight that it's the temperament that really differentiates the best investors. It's not the IQ or anything like that, which is a good thing because I'm smart enough, but I'm not the world's smartest person. I think I like the puzzle solving aspect of it. I also like the fact that you're looking at new things over and over again. But finally, I guess it suits my temperament because I'm pretty logical and I'm rational and I pride myself as an engineer by training on just following a process and really trying to improve my process a little bit at a time. And so an investment approach that basically tries to be systematic and disciplined really plays to my strengths and 
probably something that minimizes my many, many weaknesses. Mm. That's a great lesson for the listeners is that you find the strategy that really fits your personality. Valuable. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, you know, it was from a while back. Not to say that I haven't had many bad ones since then. But it was circa 2005. I was a senior analyst at one of the predecessor firms of the company that I worked at prior to starting my own firm. And the company in question was Sprint. Now, this isn't the Sprint that recently merged with, uh, or rather it is, with uh, T-Mobile, but it's different. I mean, it's the predecessor company of Sprint. And basically, you know, the setup was as follows. You had a, you know, merger between Nextel and Sprint. I was a relatively young analyst a few years out of college, and I built, I think, the world's biggest model ever. You know, it had many, many lines. It had dozens and dozens of lines. It has a complicated discounted cash flow analysis and all that. On top of that, you know, I met with a CEO whose name happened to be Gary. You know, I'm a big believer in behavioral biases. I'm not sure <laughs> if having the same first name affected it or not, but maybe. And we do like people like ourselves. That's just one of those biases that we all, at least most of us have. And, you know, I kind of listened to Gary's story and the management pitch and, you know, it sounded very good. You know, it was basically... You had, you know, you're going to have this merger, you're going to cut all these costs. And the best thing about those cost cuts is I could put them right into my giant model because, you know, it's easy. It's easy to quantify that and put it into a cell. And, you know, they were going to do all these wonderful things. And I remember having, you know, kind of some, you know, some questions like, well, you know, these are pretty different businesses. Well, these are pretty different cultures, but the management said, no, not a problem. We're really going to ring fence the culture and really preserve it and really, you know, make sure that things are safe and take the best from both companies. And, you know, the, the usual BS, the kind of like you would expect them to say, but at that point, I didn't know any better. And, of course, I fell for it. And you know, so I started modeling. And that was probably the first part of the mistake. You know, I just stopped thinking and I started modeling. I started kind of, which is easy for a guy who's mm. relatively quantitative and likes numbers, right? You jump into trying to quantify things. Then, so... And the reason this is probably the worst mistake is because I probably made seven or eight mistakes combined into one here. And you know, so I was kind of a senior analyst and I was kind of mentoring other analysts at the firm and so forth. And then one day, and I recommended that we, we buy a position and we did. And then one day I was updating my model and I realized I literally made a mistake. Not like a sophisticated mistake, but like the cell was pointing, linking to the wrong cell. And that boosted the value inappropriately by 20%. <laughs> you know, so like, the, you know, like if, if that ever happens to most people, like the first inclination is like, well, can I hide it somehow, right? <laughs> can I find some offsets and tinker with some other things in the model to get back the 20%? Because, you know, like who wants to go raise their hand and say, hi, my name is stupid. I just like literally linked to the wrong cell and part of the basis of my recommendation is completely bogus and doesn't, you know, and by the way, I went to MIT, I, you know, right? You know, so that, that's just not a fun thing to say, but I also recognize, A, that's not the right thing to do in general, and B, you know, I think it's important to model intellectual honesty, right, and do the right thing. So I sent an email to everyone and said, guys, I made a mistake. It's a big one. You know, here's what it is. Here's what I'm doing. And, you know, so I felt slightly better. You know, I only felt nine out of 10 bad. I got like 
one point back for at least being honest about it and owning up to it. But that's not the end of it because, no, like everyone makes linking mistakes once in a while. I mean, but this thing became a disaster. You can't even pull up the stock chart for Sprint because it's, you know, kind of like the Bloomberg won't even pull it up because it kind of went through several iterations. But, I mean, we got involved in the 20s. I mean, the stock bottomed, I think, in the low single digits or something like that. Mm. And all along the way, I kept, you know, relying on my model and how cheap it was. You know, remember, going back to liking discipline, liking a process, relying on the framework that kind of, you know, discipline is what I'm all about. But here's the thing. You have to be disciplined about the right thing. You know, if you're disciplined about the wrong thing, you just, you know, perseverating in your mistake, right? Mm. And very slowly, all the qualitative things that I never paid attention to fully, you know, the cultural mismatch, the two different networks because you're combining incompatible networks and trying to migrate from one to another to save the costs, management from the original Nextel team leaving, and far less competent management taking over. All those things, those qualitative, maybe somewhat more intangible factors really dwarf things. And eventually my value came down slowly, but you know, a little bit slower than the price. So it was a kind of a classic value trap in the sense that there really is no such thing as a value trap. A value trap is just essentially when you make a mistake, <laughs> but you recognize it with a delay and the market recognizes the mistake slightly faster than you recognize your mistake. And at any given point, the stock appears to be a good value to you because you compare in price and value, which is what you're taught to do. But then the next iteration, the stock is lower, so is your value. And again, you can't sell because it's again undervalued and so forth until it goes down a lot. So basically, this stock went down 80%. And I made, as I mentioned, from an Excel linking mistake to a you know, just a analytic, series of analytical mistakes to just getting lost in the model and forgetting like the basics of like, like why is this a good investment? Well, it's like a third tier company in a tough industry. Like, let's go back to investing 101, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's you know, not, they have a unionized labor force. They have no competitive advantage, you know, barring the melting Nextel business. They have a mediocre management team. They have a leverage balance sheet. All the things that now kind of second nature. But yeah, you know, in my defense, this is probably you know four or five years into my career. But still, you know, I should have known better even at mm. that point. But we lost a bunch of money, and I gained some experience. And maybe you know, as they say in poker, when a man with money meets a man with experience, the man with experience leaves with the money, and the man with money leaves with experience. So, <laughs> so I left. I left with some experience there. Yeah. Well, tell us, how would you summarize the lessons you learned from that experience? Well, I guess one is, you know, think about the quality of aspects long and hard before you put anything, any numbers down, right? I think that's mistake number one. And if it doesn't pass your quality of filters, the numbers don't matter. You should just pass. As Buffett says, you know, he has a too tough pile and most things he just rejects as doesn't know enough to make a conclusion one way or the other. I would say number two is maybe talk to management, but make sure it's a small input into your decision-making process. I think it's very easy to kind of just get persuaded by a charismatic management team and 
they got to be CEO and CFO and whatnot because they're good at persuading people, like the board of directors to make them CEO, right? Mm. So you have to make sure that at the very least you counterbalance that point of view with opposing point of view and kind of de-bias yourself. I'd say three, make things as simple as possible, but not simpler. Yep. You know, like a low model, I kind of cringe now when you know someone shows me a hundred line plus model. And I get that sometimes maybe for some unique situation, like some pharmaceutical business where you need to model a drug or something like that. Maybe it's warranted. But even then, if the investment is really compelling, it should scream at you that it's compelling. Like if you really need a complicated model to really determine how amazing the investment is, it just tells you that either you don't know the business well enough to simplify it, or it's just not that compelling. It's too close to call and you're using this big fancy Excel model to kind of bludgeon the, the truth into kind of fitting your narrative or the narrative you want to tell. So I think relatively simple models that mm. kind of summarize economic reality, focus on understanding things deeply and then making sure you control your behavioral biases and try to offset them whenever possible. And oh, by the way, don't, don't link to the wrong cell. Yeah. In Excel. That, that helps. <laughs> well, let me summarize some of the things that I take away from it. I think the first thing that I wrote down, I wrote down a bunch of things, but first thing was when you said management pitch and that's exactly what it is. And you highlighted in your learnings is that, Management is good at pitching their story and they're eternal optimists. You know, I've, as a broker on the sell side, I've taken probably gone to, let's say, more than a thousand company meetings where I've taken fund managers from around the world to meet with management here in Thailand. And I would say 95% of those were just a waste of time. Most of the information could have been had on the internet. And I wouldn't say that there was anything, you know, in fact, it probably could have been even damaging because the fund manager got to like that person and all of a sudden a whole new bias came in. The second thing I learned from those meetings was that senior management will never and can never really tell you about the risks that are on the way because they, they just don't, they don't communicate that, they communicate the upside. And the second thing is that if they saw some really serious thing happening, they would have to disclose that to the market, not to any individual. So it made me question a lot about listening to management and all that. So I like the fact that you said, make the management, you know, don't avoid management, but use it as a small input. The second thing is that I did a research a while ago where I looked at 5,000 M&A deals across the world to try to understand two things, the return that you would get if you bought either the acquirer or the company that is being acquired. And what I found was you got a little bit of an advantage by, by buying the company that was being acquired, but not by much. Mm -hmm. Of course, the way people make a lot of money in that is they tend to buy those companies that are being bought before the announcement comes out that they're being bought. But the more important thing out of that study is I looked at the return on invested capital of the company, the parent company, three to five years going forward. And I found that in about 78% of the times, the return on invested capital was lower in the three to five years after the M&A deal than it was when the M&A deal happened, which tells you all of the talk of synergy is just talk. And I've lived through, and anybody who has lived through one company buying another, they all talk about how it's going to work out. But in reality, it's just clash of cultures and human nature, which brings us to the next thing that I thought about a lot when you talked, and that is that 
a lot of young people particularly think that value investing is all about the numbers. But what you've told us that I think is really great is that actually the qualitative aspect is the key. Numbers are just a tool that helps us kind of understand something, but that qualitative aspect. And finally, the last thing I wrote down, and I actually talk about this in my valuation masterclass, which is complexity versus simplicity. Like when I was young, I thought that complexity really added value. And then I learned that actually the deeper and deeper you go into some financial model or something like that, there's no benefit once you get past a certain point and the costs start to rise. So those are some of the things I took away. It's a lot of stuff. Anything you'd add to that? No, I think you summarize it well. Yeah. So let me ask you, based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think, you know, I'm a big believer in systematically understanding behavioral biases. And I, I like to think about it in two kind of stages. One is behavioral defense, which is kind of guarding against biases. And two is behavioral offense, which is where, you know, as a value investor, you're taking advantage of the mistakes of market participants. And that's why, or a big reason for why opportunities exist in the market from time to time. So I think especially on the defense side, I would say try to be systematic and try to be you know, rigorous and creating kind of a checklist of behavioral biases and steps that you would make, you would take to try to minimize them. I think minimizing is probably the best we can do. We can't eliminate them. We're human. But I think being rigorous about that kind of approach ho hopefully tilts the odds a bit in your favor. Mm, great. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I don't have, you know, one set of goals, but I think I'm a big fan of kind of the stoic philosophy and, you know, and the key tenet of that philosophy is that there's things you can control that are within your power to affect. And there's things that are outside of your control and, you know, you can choose how you react, but you can't change them. Right. And so I like to focus on what I can control and what I can control is my process. Right. And so my goal is to get a little bit better this 12 months and I've been doing it for 20 years and if, you know, knowledge compounds and process improvement uh, as an old system engineer mm. a long time ago, uh, you know, compounds. And so I think my goal is to keep adding to that compounding and keep moving my process slowly and steadily in a positive direction and hope that hopefully in the decades to come, those small changes build and snowball into meaningful, positive improvement. Mm. Beautiful. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com and I look forward seeing you there. As we conclude, Gary, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, but just keep learning and stay calm and you know, just focus on the process. Beautiful. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.